I'm going to begin in chapter 7, verse 1, and read through verse 14, just to remind us of the context. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version. You'll you'll notice it it translates the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which is what it is. Uh, Your Bible likely has Lord, capital L-O-R-D, caps. Um, But I've been using this translation on Sunday mornings and finding it helpful. Now it happened that in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. And the town of Bethel sent Sherazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of Yahweh and hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of Yahweh came of hosts came to me, says Zechariah, saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, are you not eating for yourselves and are you not drinking for yourselves? Are not these the words which Yahweh called out by the hand of the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and at ease along with its cities around it and the Negev and the Shephelah were inhabited? Then the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner or the afflicted. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to give heed and turned a stubborn shoulder and dulled their ears from hearing. And they made their hearts diamond hard so that they could not hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit by the hand of the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts. And it happened that just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says Yahweh of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one was passing through and returning, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing one more time. Oh God, we have sung a song asking you to speak, and we just pause one more time in reverence and sincerity that you would help us this morning. Help me to be clear. We ask that your spirit and that you, Lord Jesus, would be the primary teachers this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to verses 8 through 14 this morning, we come to a rather hard word. This is a difficult word this morning, and once again, this morning, we're going to be challenged. Last week, we were challenged in the first seven verses to examine our hearts. God asked this delegation with this question, um, hey, was it really for me that you've actually been doing this all these years? So last week was a 
a word of challenge to us to examine our hearts, to examine the intent of why we do what we do. Why are we doing what we're doing as believers? Why are we living? Why are, what are we doing as a church? What, what's it really about? This morning we come to a hard word again, challenging us to consider how do we listen to the word of God. But I want to encourage you at the outset that, as I said at the beginning, that chapters 7 and 8 belong together. This is all these words, chapters 7 and 8, contain God's response to this delegation. And there is a word of rebuke in, verse, in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, with that correction and with that rebuke, God is going to lavish them and us with incredible words of promise and comfort about the future. And that's how God is, isn't it? I just want to say at the outset that God is so kind that he rebukes us, he corrects us. And sometimes it smarts, it, it, it hurts a little bit. Um, uh, some of us um, were disciplined by loving parents. And, and some of us, I know, experienced abuse, and that's a terrible thing. But some of us, by God's grace, grew up in homes where we were spanked. Yes, we were spanked. And uh, we were spanked in love most of the time. And, and, uh, and uh, we can remember it stung. Uh, I can remember. My brother was spanked a lot more than I was, but I still remember those few occasions, and uh, it made an impression upon me. And uh, it stung, but it stung for a moment. And I caution you at the outset, as we look at verses 8 through 14, God is going to challenge us here this morning. And he is going to search us. And it may be rather tough. But I want to remind you that he does so in love. He does not do so to condemn us. For if that was the case, you would not have a chapter 8. And I realize you haven't read chapter 8 but you have to take my word for it this morning. It's really good, and I can't wait to preach on it. I won't be here next Sunday morning. I'll, I'll be up at Hope Baptist Church in West Stewartstown, uh, northern New Hampshire, on the border of Canada, which is the Arctic Circle. But uh, not really. Uh, but uh, my uh, good friend Paul Avang, pastor there, he's invited me up to preach. And so you'll have uh, Jimmy Snowden preaching next Sunday morning. But in two weeks, Lord willing. I can't wait to get to chapter 8. It is just full of wonderful promises. So, and, and some Christians today want to say, well, which is it? Which is it? Is it, is it, are you going to preach about sin and correction? And am I going to go out of here feeling like a rotten, lousy sinner? Probably, maybe. Or does God love me and is there hope and comfort? Yeah, both. That's it. You got it? And so much in evangelical Christianity, our tendency as churches is to kind of swing one, one way or the other. And we're safe when we stick close to God's word. And we find that he corrects us, his people, not to condemn us, but to call us back to himself. And with his correction, oh, will he lavish us, lavish us with gospel kindness and comfort and wonderful promises of the future. So here, verses 8 through 14 this morning, in the shadow of the wonderful words of comfort and hope that have already been given in Zechariah and that will come in chapter 8. Well, here, God is again responding through the prophet Zechariah, verse, 
chapter 7, verse 8, then the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah saying, that's the key phrase. You, you see it up in verse 4, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. You see it in verse 8, you'll see it in chapter 8, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. And then you'll see verse 18 of chapter 8, the word of the Lord came to me. That's where we get our four words from the Lord in response to this delegation. And again, this delegation of these men, this man, these men from Bethel, Sherazar, and Regamelech, they are Jewish men. We have no reason to doubt their sincerity. Um, they bear their names from Babylonian captivity, and at least they're among some of the exiles who stepped out to actually return, which you might think is an easy decision, but it wasn't. If you've been settled in a certain land for 70 years, you've established yourself, you have a home, you have a business, um, you maybe like the climate a little better. Um, and to up and sell your home and, and leave your business and to return to a desolate land, that's what Israel and Judah is at this point. The land is, was desolate because of the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians. They're, they're going back to a, a war-torn uh, land. There's rubble in Jerusalem. Parts of Jerusalem look a little bit what you see Gaza looking like these days. Not nice, not pleasant, not easy. A lot of the systems aren't in place yet. A lot of the local governments aren't, aren't formed very well. There's all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems. But these men have returned and they are from the town of Bethel. And instead of like their forefathers, assuming that they can worship the Lord in Bethel, they've come to the place at least where in humility they acknowledge, no, we need to go seek the Lord in the place where he wants us to, and that's Jerusalem. And they come to Zechariah and to the priests, and they ask, what is the earnest question? Verse 3, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? For 70 years or so, they and other Jews had had a day of fasting. In fact, they had established by that point four days of fasting, commemorating various tragic moments in their history. And the one they're initially asking about in the fifth month was that time in 586 BC when the Babylonians utterly destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And there's nothing inherently wrong with mourning that and grieving over it. But what they had done is they had taken what was initially a sincere and a good practice, a, a way of remembering what had happened. And they had turned it into a religious practice, right? And it became very important. In fact, it became so important that they sent a delegation down to ask about it. And God, in response, first in verses 4 through 7, asked through the prophet Zechariah, these men and all that they're representing, well, you're asking me about whether, God is paraphrasing, whether you should continue fasting to remember this. I'm asking why you did it in the first place. And it is evident that to some degree, this practice of fasting on these four different days of the year and and abstaining from food, and it's, it's, a, it's a rather difficult uh, practice, uh, onerous and, 
and everybody's uh, you know, sad and mourning, it's evident that that became a badge of, of um, self-righteousness. We Christians are really good at forming external rituals with which we comfort our conscience that we are godly. And may I say that this tendency doesn't have any, um, uh, doesn't know any boundaries. In other words, you don't find it only in liberal Protestantism or, or more hip, cool, attractional, modern evangelicalism. But yes, this kind of external ritualism may be even more particularly dangerous for those of us who think ourselves to be rather, uh, how shall I say it, uh, conservative and serious Bible people. It is very easy for us to have the appearance of godliness, at least in our own hearts and minds, and to be lacking the substance. So God is just here, just blows through their question and says, well, was it for me in the first place anyways? Oh, that's from last week's sermon, and and that one's still resonating with me. Why do I do what I do? Why do I... Why do I pastor? Why do I preach? Why do I live the Christian life? And isn't it so easy for it to become a series of routines that we just go through and little by little we lose our heart and we find ourselves like the church of Ephesus with Jesus saying to us, like he said to Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Now, as he's confronted the issue of the heart intent, he hasn't really answered their question, and that is another interesting observation, that just because we ask a question of the Lord and because something seems pressing and relevant to us doesn't mean that it seems pressing and relevant to him. Ooh, that hurts. And in this age of consumer spirituality in which we must have things such and such a way, we must notice that in God's word that God never bows. It's for us to bow, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So we want to be careful. It's appropriate for us to ask questions of God sincerely, but we always want to remember that God has the prerogative as the sovereign over our lives to help us restate the question and actually help us reorient what is most important, reorient our minds to what is most important. So he, he says, well, hey, he, he really, can, it's, it's a correction. Uh, was that for me anyways? What was your intent? And then in verses 8 through 14, now God responds by asking them what they've done with what has already been written. The key of the context here is they have sent a delegation, the people of Israel have sent a delegation of these men to ask a question about a, in and of itself, innocent, maybe religious routine. There's nothing inherently wrong with fasting on the fifth month and abstaining if you want to do that. But they are worked up and they're really pressing and so much so that they send a delegation here's the key to ask a question about a practice that actually isn't commanded in God's word and in verses 8 through 14 God says effectively 
Well, you've got this question about this practice that you've developed and created. Rather than me answering on you on that, how about you get back to what I've already spoken? So let's look at this passage together. You can divide it up in verses 8 and 10, verses 11 and 12, and verses 13 and 14. The first here in verses 8 through 10, where God is telling them and us, pay attention to what has already been written. Pay attention to what has already been written. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, verse 9, judge with true justice, show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner or the afflicted or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Huh. So they're asking about fasting, and God is exposing that among the people generally, apparently, they are getting back to their old ways of disobeying the law. Verse 10 is taken almost verbatim, from Exodus chapter 22. This isn't new. God is just quoting or directing them back to an example passage of what he had given to the Israel, to the people of Israel, all the way back at Mount Sinai through Moses. You're asking me about fasting. How are you doing with justice? and care for one another. Again, it's as though God, and I shouldn't speak on, dare to paraphrase God, but you, you get the sense of, who says I ever cared about whether you fast or not on the fifth day? I've already told you what I really care about. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? And apparently, as they returned to the land, they were struggling. You can imagine that you're returning numbers, thousands of people back to the various territories. A lot of the territory has been empty or vacant for 70 or more years. Property lines have maybe been confused. Maybe somebody else was living in someone else's house while they were away. You got all kinds of confusion, right, as people return. The, the temptation to be selfish and to use the opportunity of all the turmoil of these 70 years in the return, the, op- the temptation to use the turmoil for selfish personal gain to get a little one-up on your neighbor is very powerful, and apparently it's taking place. They're, they're taking advantage, those who have means and power and ability are taking advantage of the transition of the impoverishment of many of the people to build up their own house, to build up their own lands, their own property. There's a justice system that is in flex. And so really there's not, a, the, the, there's not an external force of justice that, must, that, that can really come to bear upon this situation. In some towns, there's no court to go to, for example. There's no one you can appeal to for an unjust decision in some cases. So what must they rely on? They must rely upon the governing law of God in the heart. It's the same for our society as an aside. In our society right now, we're seeing the um, spiral down. 
Because what we're seeing right now is the loss of any internal restraint. How do most people think about law these days? Whether it's driving or taxes or whatever it may be, will someone find it out? Will I get caught? And if as a society, that's your only real governing um, value to keep people in check, it won't work. Because the only way you can have enough to uh, help people get caught, you actually can never have enough. The only, the only fix you have for that is a totalitarian state where there's utter fear and terror that keeps people in check. So if you want a free society... And our forefathers talked about this. You must have, yes, external restraints. You must have law. You must have judges that are judged justly and, and righteously. And you must have those who enforce the law judiciously. But you first and foremost must have a restraint from within. And that's what God's getting at. You're apparently, by highlighting from Exodus chapter 22, that they were apparently not showing true justice, verse 9. They were manipulating things for advantage. They were not showing loving kindness. That's that Hebrew word chesed. That's, that's God's loving kindness. That's God's covenant gracious love. That is the love with which you are loved and I am loved in Christ. That is faithful, gracious love. And as God has loved us with that love, we are to love one another with that love, but they weren't. And they certainly weren't being compassionate. These who had received compassion, they had been sent into exile. Their land had been destroyed. And God in his mercy and kindness had brought them back in his compassion. And yet still they found it hard to be compassionate with one another. Verse 10. Widows. At that time, there's no social security. There's no governmental system to fall back on. Widows are among the most vulnerable in that kind of society. If, if the neighbors don't provide for her and defend her, no one will. And apparently, there was oppression of widows and, and orphans for strangers. These were aliens, immigrants, and the poor. In each of these situations, there was a violation of the law of God. And surely these are only representative of the kind of violations that were taking place. So in response to their question about a religious practice that they had developed, God asks the question, well, what are you doing with my word, my law that's already been given? And the same question needs to be asked of us, doesn't it? This is always our tendency is to be people, men and women who have a Bible. Maybe we have multiple Bibles. I have, I have numerous Bibles, um, different translations. It's helpful for me for study. I have Bibles of different size, particularly as I get a little older and and uh, have a little trouble seeing. And, and uh, I like some Bibles have more study notes and other notes have, uh, Bibles have cross-references. So we, we can be people who have lots of Bibles, Bibles printed, Bibles on our phones. And yet all the while, 
We're not really paying attention to what has been written. And I do want you to notice, I want to emphasize in this first point, that God is addressing the law. And I need to say here that the law of God, the moral law of God, still has, listen, a positive place and role in a believer's life. A positive. Yes, it is, of course, the Apostle Paul teaches, we're not justified, declared righteous, by our adherence to the Old Testament law and the ceremonies and so forth. They are fulfilled in Christ. But now that Christ has come, are we done with you shall not murder? I don't think so. Are we done with you shall not covet? I don't think so. Are we done with caring for widows and orphans? I don't think so. So the law, listen, in the Old and New Testaments, all the New Testament does, by the way, there's really not one new command in the New Testament. Not one. If you look at the root of all of the moral commands, all the things that the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John and others impress upon born-again, grace-receiving Christians to practice and do, they're really commands that are first revealed in the Old Testament law. That's why even, yes, a believer, of course, should be able to say, oh, how I love your law. That's why I was... We read Psalm 119 together. I just saw that and we had to. Oh, how I love your law. God's law, Walter Kaiser, who's a professor, was a professor of mine in seminary. He, has a, he, he argues that that aspect of the law is a guide to holiness. I think that's very helpful. The law, apart from Christ, condemns us, of course. But in Christ, as those who are justified, as we sang, in Christ, in Christ alone... We, then, are those who want to serve and please Christ. Well, how do we know how to do that? The law of God is a guide to holiness, a guide to holy living. So God is directing them and us back to what he has already written. How are we doing with his commands? And are we, are we thinking justly? Are we looking for ourselves first? Or are, we, are we seeking to practice what is right? You know, in the church, sometimes we can, you can develop a system in which it's not about um, principles, but about personalities. And that's an ever-present um, danger. And one, one application of this would be that we, we do what we do according to biblical principles without favoritism to specific individuals. That's just one example. We certainly should have loving kindness and compassion to each other. I wonder, do we have harsh thoughts about our brother and sister in Christ? If so, we've forgotten who we are. How can we entertain harsh thoughts about our brothers and sisters in Christ when we have been recipients of such mercy from God? And as for the widow and the orphan and the downtrodden, we are to have a compassionate heart. And we are to be ready as the Lord leads us and as he provides opportunity to be gentle and to be gracious and to be generous with those who are in need. This should be characteristic of us as individuals, but also of us as a church. And I'll just say here, as a church, if you become aware of someone in our midst or someone you know that is um, as best they can trying to make a living but has circumstances outside their control are having a difficult time, will you please make that known to the elders and deacons? 
or maybe you help provide for that need itself. We're so quick, I just have to say here, to come up with systems, with structures. Do you see what God's after? He's after the heart. Just, just do it. Have a heart and do it. Have compassion. Follow his law. Follow his ways. And where we are shortcoming, we need to acknowledge that this morning and repent. Secondly, in verses 11 through 12, not only do we need to pay attention to what's already been written, but we need to consider the danger of a diamond-hard heart. The danger of a diamond-hard heart. Did that get your attention when we first read it? Verse 12, they made their hearts diamond-hard. Wow. That's, that's a heart that is so hardened that it becomes impervious to the word of God. Wow. So hardened, so calloused. And there's a history here that God's referring to. Verse 11, he says, he, they, referring to his people in the past, they refused to give heed, turned a stubborn shoulder, and dulled their ears from hearing. Turn back with me to Isaiah 58. We know that uh, Israel in the days of Moses did that. But just before the overthrow of Judah by Babylon, God had also dealt with this issue of fasting and true righteousness through the prophet Isaiah. Now this is... This is uh, almost a couple hundred years earlier at this point. And here in Isaiah 58, God says to Isaiah, verse 2, They seek me, speaking of the people, they seek me day by day and find pleasure in knowing my ways. That's, in other words, legalistic. As a nation who has done righteousness and has not forsaken the judgment of their God. In other words, that's how they think of themselves. I mean, they're, they're conservative, they're, they're, they're serious people about the word of God. That's how they think of themselves, God says. They ask me for righteous judgments. They find pleasure in the nearness of God. That's, they find, they're proud that they have the temple in Jerusalem. Why, they say, have we fasted? And they say to God, you do not see. Sounds just like the delegation 200 years later or so that went to Zechariah. Do you see? Why have we fasted, O God, and you do not see? Why have we afflicted our souls and you do not know? God's answer? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and quarreling and to strike with a wicked fist. Do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for man to, a man to afflict himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed or spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast? Even an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is this not the fast which I choose? Says the Lord. To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to release the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the afflicted homeless into your house? When you see the naked, you cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth 
and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of Yahweh will be your rear guard. Then you will call and Yahweh the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. 200 some odd years later, 518 BC, before the birth of Christ or so, and God is saying, not only did I send my law through Moses all the way back in Exodus, but just a few hundred years ago, before you, you're, you went off into exile, I addressed this issue of fasting and what I really wanted. And now here we are 200 years later, and you still haven't learned. And why is that? Because, listen, they had developed the ability to reject the word of the Lord. They had developed callousness. They had developed dull ears. They did not, verse 11 of Zechariah 7, give heed. They turned a stubborn shoulder. That's an attitude. That's a way to respond. I mean, if if you see someone that you don't want to see, you kind of go like this and you turn and you start going. (laughs) When when children are little and uh, they're caught and they're in trouble and they know it and some of us as parents, we know what it is to ha- when, when it's time for discipline. The little child looks for us, and what do they do? <laughs> they turn around and, and try to get away. They, they don't, they're not looking at like, oh, yes, Father, that's, you're right. I should be disciplined, <laughs> right? They turn a shoulder. So the people of Israel and Judah have been doing that for centuries. And God is warning this delegation and us to not do that but rather to not refuse to give heed to the word, but to respond to it. Not turn a stubborn shoulder to the word of God, but to turn our faces and our hearts toward it. Not to dull our ears from hearing, but to pray as we sang this morning, Oh, Spirit of God, sensitize my dumb, dull, stone heart to your word. We can become dull Many of us who have been believers for some time, we know what this is, and it's frightening. There may be, we can remember a time, maybe it wasn't too long ago, when we read our Bibles with anticipation, and we were learning things, and and we were being convicted, and we weren't resentful of that. We were thankful for that, and, and we were learning about God and about Christ, and our hearts were fired up with love for God and his majesty and the wonder of the gospel, and, and we were serving, but then something happened, or a series of some things happened, and, and little by little, we, eh, we maybe read it, but not with much interest or eagerness, or, or maybe we just read the word as a matter of routine, for after all, you know, we are a Bible-reading people, and we should be, but not that kind reading it. Maybe there was a time when we looked forward to the preaching of God's word and we prayed, oh God, help that man, please, please, Lord, because I need something today. Please help that man. Please help him to read your word and to share it. And we actually anticipated that God in his mercy might work through a sinful fallen man to actually teach and preach the word in such a way that we might be instructed and convicted and our hearts warmed. And, And we used to anticipate that and look for it. But now maybe we've just, it's just routine. You know, I just I just go to church and hope the sermon isn't too long and and look forward to brunch and lunch and I listen I love lunch I I'm never hungrier than I am after Sunday mornings for some reason but if we've come to the place where the reading and preaching of God's word is just a blip in our week and we can get on 
we're in a bad way. We've developed, little by little, a dullness to the word. We've become desensitized. And the danger is, if we let that go, that we can, verse 12, develop hearts that are diamond hard. That is one of the most terrifying descriptions in all of the Bible. Diamond being, to these folks and to most folks, known as the hardest stone or element. Unable to be even scratched by other forces. This is not saying that somehow God's word is, is uh, unable to pierce a diamond hard heart. What it is declaring is that it is a great sin and wicked thing to let your heart go so long in resisting the word of God and what he's telling you to the point where you developed a callus of your heart, if you will, that's so hard. It's not just hard as a rock. It's hard as a diamond. That is so dangerous. That is so dangerous. And I hope you understand there's an urgency. I, I perhaps have referenced this before, but um, early when Chris and I were mar- married and, and attending a local church, and I, God was working in my heart, and I had been a believer for years, but I never had really, I don't think, understood the place of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. At that point, I had no inclination that I would actually be a preacher one day. And, and as I began to understand this, I, I remember I would take time. And I'm not saying this to lift. I'm just, we're, we're in this together. I just want to give you a little a, a model, if you will, or a, a practical application. But when I first understand this and I saw some people in my life who were hardened, I, I tried to consider how is it, why is it that, that I actually have an interest in the word and, and many of my college buddies uh, who said they were Christians, have zero. It scared me. And I knew it wasn't because I was smarter, and I knew it wasn't because I was better, but it was all of grace. And so I, I remember going to those early worship services when we were married, and they had a preparation time before the service, and, and I was scared. I was scared. Oh, God, please today, please don't let me go. Please convict me. Please Please teach me something, because I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble if you don't. Is that our, that, that, now I wonder, do I still have that attitude today? And I don't always. We're ever in danger, though, of a diamond hard heart, and we need to remember it. God had already sent his word, and I need to notice there, just in passing, verse 12, that God sent his word by his spirit, by the hand of the former prophets, that's what Peter is reflecting on in Second Peter when he says, Know this, that no prophecy of Scripture came by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by will of man, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit sent from God. It's likely that Peter is reflecting on Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12, that God sent by his Spirit, his word by his Spirit. This word, brothers and sisters in Christ, is coming from God's own Spirit to us. Maybe receive it. Thirdly and finally this morning, and 
This is a rather, we go from fearful possibility. I, I need to pause. I, maybe there's someone here asking, well, well, can a Christian develop a diamond heart? Apparently, oh, <laughs> no, I'm in trouble. I believe with all my heart that the spirit that God gave to us, he will, pres- he will preserve us, right? And he will bring it through. How does he do that? Does he do that by you and I being callous about his word? Oh, no. So what do you do with the warnings of the Bible, the New Testament? You take them seriously. And we'll end with one this morning. And you don't ask, is that possible? You say, oh, God, have mercy on me. Let that not happen to me. What do I need to do? How do I need to respond? And, oh, thank you that in the end that my salvation is not dependent ultimately on my perseverance, but on your faithfulness. Praise you. But the preserving power of God in our salvation and the reality that Jesus, what Jesus says, he will not let any of us go does not promote indifference. It ought to promote vigilance in the Christian life. This isn't theoretical stuff. This is serious. Well, thirdly and finally, tremble at the justice of God's wrath upon word rejectors. Tremble at the justice of God's wrath upon word rejectors. God is reflecting on the past and and what he had done in light of many generations of Israelites and Judeans resisting the word. And God says that just as verse 13, they would not listen, so I, they called and I would not listen. That's the justice of God. Frightening. And if we don't respond to God's word or we're indifferent to it or callous to it, what the Bible teaches is that God in zeal for his own name can actually come to a place where he no listen, no longer hears the prayers of a Christian or of a church. You say, that's possible? Well, what do you do with 1 Peter 3? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is serious stuff. He's a living God. He's not an idea or a concept. He's the holy living one. And the Bible teaches us God is not mocked. So where there's a church that doesn't really cherish God's word and and strive humbly to pay attention to that word and to respond to that word, that church is in danger of what Jesus said, of of removing the lampstand, which means removing ultimately his word. Frightening. And we have evidences here in New England. We all know that more than anybody as we look around and we see these edifices that once were built for the word of God, for the preaching of God's word, and, and now they're just shells and it's, you know, it's nothing inherently wrong about changing a building for another use, but but I'm talking about places where God was once worshipped and his word was heard and heaven now is shut to those churches. Frightening. So this is serious stuff. God is warning this delegation, the people of that day. He's calling them to wake up. 
He's calling them and us, how are you dealing with my word? How are you responding to it? And this is the just response. The justice of God in not listening to prayers. Be very careful with this, brothers and sisters, because there are times when we pray and God does not answer simply because his answer and his sovereign plan is no. And that does not mean that he disapproves of us. That does not mean that he does not love us. All of our, that our, some of our prayers are unanswered does not mean that necessarily that God is judging us. And it can be that if we're finding that it would seem that heaven is shut off to us and like brass, that we might want to examine ourselves and think first about, well, how am I responding to what God has said to me before I open my mouth and say something to him? The justice of God not listening to prayers. And then for Israel and Judah, the justice of being scattered. He says, I, verse 14, I scattered them with a storm wind among the nations. And thus the land is desolate behind them so that no one's passing through. Wow. Hebrews 12, verse 25 is maybe the best New Testament, New Covenant reinstatement or application of this for believers. Again, it's a, it's a warning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, and with this we'll close. How serious it is it that we as New Covenant, New Testament, gospel-believing Christians, trusting in the grace of God through faith in Christ, how important is it that we listen to God's word? Hebrews 12, verse 25 See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. There's a warning here. We need to take seriously how we respond to the word of God. And the wonderful, wonderful reality is that as we humble ourselves, as we ask God to sensitize our hearts, maybe we've become dull. What what do you need to do this morning? If you recognize you're here this morning, you know what? I've become dull to the hearing of God's word. My heart is insensitized. What can you do about that? You, You can confess that and you can make your priority right now praying, oh God, have mercy on me and correct my hearing and would you take my heart that is dangerously close to being like a diamond and oh God would you in your mercy and kindness again give me a heart of flesh and what hope do you have brother or sister in Christ what what hope do you have believer that he'll answer that prayer well you see at the very heart of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as we learned in Sunday school this morning what does God do he takes out a heart of stone And he says, I will give you a heart of flesh. He loves that. He wants to give you ears to hear. He wants you to be sensitized. And as he gives you a heart to listen and respond, oh, yes, he'll give you his commands. He'll teach you his ways. He'll correct you. He'll rebuke you. He'll instruct you. But as we'll look at again in in the coming weeks, he'll also fill the ears of your heart with promises 
and good things so that your heart once again is, again is overflowing with joy. Amen. He'll do that. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. Thank you for your correction. Thank you for your warnings. We bless you for this hard word uh, from your servant Zachariah this morning, ultimately from your spirit. We do not want to go from this place, oh God, before each of us in our own heart and mind speaks to you. And where we have become hardened or dull, that we ask you to forgive us. And that we ask, as we have already sung, that you would speak to us afresh in your word, the written word. And that, as we read earlier in Psalm 119, that we would find wonderful things there. That you would help us to remember where we come from, remember your grace, remember your gospel. Remember your compassion that you've poured out on us. That you would bring softness to our hearts, maybe tears to our eyes again, in reality of the wonder of our salvation. May we leave to you the things that we do not understand, the wounds and the hurts that we cannot yet comprehend. Help us to be like little children looking up at our loving, faithful Father and hanging on every word. May we do this in sincerity and from the very heart that you yourself have put within us, created by your own spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.